0: Start with me the book of Acts chapter 1. We started teaching Sunday night on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It hit a lot of different aspects that we hadn't maybe looked at before. With over 120 verses building the doctrine that is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's something we ought to frequently visit over and over and over again. And the next book I have in the queue to work on uh, from scratch is the one about the Holy Spirit and being more than a stained glass dove. The more I study the Holy Spirit, the more I study veins of theology, the more I realize the modern church is slowly denying Jesus through the denying of the Holy Spirit and doesn't even realize it. If we are going to call ourselves Trinitarians, we're going to have to say God and the Father, excuse me, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. They're three persons, which means they have distinct roles. That's called economic Trinitarianism or economic subordinationism. They have three separate roles. If not, there's no reason for there to be three distinct persons, one triune God. It is a mystery. We hold it in attention. But if we agree that they are one with individual roles, we cannot deny one without denying the others. And one of the things we've said in the last few months teaching on the paracletical teachings of Christ is that just as the Old Testament told us what to look for in a Messiah and had all these messianic prophecies so that when He were to manifest, there's no way you could miss Him. So the Lord Jesus taught all sorts of things about the Holy Spirit so that when He comes, there would be no way you could miss Him. And yet, except... The Jews did, and we do. Now, not every Jew did, and not every one of us does. But I I will never, I believe, go so far as to say Christians are committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit by being ignorant of Him, but in a technicality, they are committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit when they declare that the work of the Holy Spirit is really the work of the devil and vice versa. Because we here as Baptists I was taught as a Baptist, uh, if you speak in tongues, you have a devil. Well, that's giving the devil credit for the work of the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what Jesus called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When you give, when the Holy Ghost moves and you say that's a demon, that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, they do it in ignorance, as do the cessationists. Uh, I think what preserves them is that they believe in the Lord Jesus, and they're just very grossly ignorant in that arena. They don't know the Holy Spirit, but they need to uh that 's why we have to teach on these subjects and study the scriptures over and over and over again uh, to be very frank when you study the entirety of the new testament there 's no scripture that says the power of the Holy Spirit's going to cease the doctrine of cessationism I believe is a heresy i don 't believe they're heretics for believing a heresy but When you start saying the power of the Holy Spirit is no more, and you begin to insinuate the Holy Spirit is no longer supernatural, well, if he's no longer supernatural, he's no longer God. So now you just diminished and demoted the Holy Ghost. So then what good is he for? What is his power? What is his role? How is he part of the triune Godhead if he's no longer powerful? Well, he's powerful. He's just not powerful in the affairs of man. So, okay, when did he agree to this? This is what doesn't make any sense to me. So there's a lot of different ways to argue this. I just like to say, well, they say tongues has been done away with. Okay, well, listen to me carefully. That doesn't sound like it's been done away with. Now, it's maybe been done away with in your church, maybe among your denomination, but it hasn't been done away with. I have one of my favorite books in my theology library is The History of the Church. It's a Baptist text. Um, It's in its fourth edition. It's used in most seminaries. They even acknowledge in that text that the fastest growing segment of the body of Christ in the world are the Pentecostals. That's a big umbrella term, like evangelical, like Protestant. These are umbrella terms. But when you understand the fastest growing segment of the church, in fact, the growth of the church in the developing nations is Pentecostalism, you cannot dare say the power of the Holy Ghost and tongues has been done away with. What you must acknowledge is the power of the Holy Ghost and the evidence of tongues is driving church growth. Because cessationism is drying church up, wokeism is drying church up, progressivism is drying churches up. These are the churches in our nation that are crumbling and they're losing people. An article just came out today that says last year the Baptist, Southern Baptists lost 450,000 members. Largest loss in 100 years. The Southern Baptists shrunk 450,000 members in 2022. Probably for multiple reasons, my judgment is too woke, not woke enough. Too progressive, not progressive enough. And then there's just the nothers, or the nuns, who just like, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Regardless, that church has always grown, that denomination has always grown, not anymore. So we're talking about what Jesus called the promise of the Father. How many of you want the promises of God? Let's talk about the promise of the Father. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, that is his suffering. Don't think of passion like I'm really excited, but it's a different, it's King James. We have to explain these things. You and I hear things with modern terminology. Here's one of the dangerous things about modern English. The language is rapidly being evolved. And even the King James, is 1611, so we're dealing with you know almost 400 years, over 400 years old. The words don't mean the same anymore, so we have to stop and explain them. The passion of the Christ doesn't mean what he's excited about. It means what he suffered. And we don't understand passion in terms of suffering. If something causes suffering, we're not passionate about it. I'm passionate about what feels good. So this word has evolved. After his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom, and being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them, that is, his disciples that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. The promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit. We understand that? That's John chapter 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16. That's the promise of the Father. Why is it the promise of the Father? Because Jesus said, I will pray... And the Father will send you the Comforter, who is the Holy Spirit. We pointed out in weeks past that for the Lord Jesus to come along and introduce this concept of the Trinity was earth-shattering because the premier statement of Jewish faith is, Hear you, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. For Jesus to come along and say, The Father and I are one, that's cracking their brain. Because that means the Messiah, who they believed he was, was divine and not human. Because up until that point, the Messiah was a man. It was, that's what they, didn't, they couldn't see. They couldn't see that the Messiah, the promised Redeemer, wouldn't just be a really heavily anointed prophet. He would be God. And that's why he was called Emmanuel, God with us. So for, for the Lord Jesus to keep saying, I and the Father are one, that was splitting their brain It was really violating their understanding of Hebraic doctrine. And now for him to say, I and the Father are one, and I will pray the Father, and he will send you a third one. That's why they don't ask any questions in John 14, 15, and 16. They had just asked the question, who's going to betray you? And they completely whiffed on that one. So let's just be quiet here. Let's just be quiet. The promise of the Father... Again, we see the Trinity in this statement. He is talking to them. He says, don't go anywhere, but wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard of me. There's the Trinity, the Father, me, and the promise. But we also pointed out Sunday night, if and you have a Bible like mine, which is the only anointed one you should have, which is a Cambridge study Bible, you turn back one page. <laughs> and in John 20, 22, Jesus, the night of his resurrection, the night of the Lord's resurrection, he breathes on them and says, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. This is a reflection, a pattern, a model of creation when God breathed into them the breath of life and man became a living soul. This is the new birth. Every theologian agrees to this. He's not just going, oh, How does my breath smell? Oh, what's a resurrected breath smell like? It's not what he's doing. He breathes on them. It's, it's a re- reiteration, a replay of, X, of the book of Genesis when he breathes into them the breath of life. And now he's breathing into them the new birth. And they're being born again of the Holy Spirit of God. Except now John, excuse me, Acts 1 is 40 days later. And he's saying, wait for the promise of the Father. So then what happened 40 days prior? Salvation. What's about to happen? The baptism of the Holy Ghost. I'm slowing down to teach this again and again because you guys are all Pentecostals. One or two of you may not be yet, but you're all Pentecostals and you need to be able to defend this doctrine like you should be able to defend any doctrine. This is what makes us powerful. Yes, to have the presence of the Holy Spirit is, what, is how we'll be able to do things like He did and greater still. Furthermore, the commission, and I'm going to make, I've made this statement many times before. It really stretches people. It really stresses them too. It offends some, but I'm going to back it up with a scripture here. And then you, as best you want to, try to explain it away. Jesus is talking to the apostles and the others that have gathered. So there's 120, only 12 apostles of the Lamb. Really only 11. Matthias hasn't been chosen yet. And he's telling these 120 that decided to show up for church, maybe even more. Who knows how many were at the Ascension because he appeared to over 400, almost 500. He tells them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, verse 4, but wait for the promise of the Father, which you've heard of me. Verse 8, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost part of the earth. So here's my controversial statement, which I don't think is controversial. It's just offensive. Jesus told these early disciples, don't go anywhere till you have the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They're all born again. They've all been filled with the Spirit of God, or we would say born baptized into the body of Christ. He breathes into them the breath of life, the breath of eternal life. They have the Holy Spirit. They just don't have the promise of the Father. And the commandment to the apostles of the Lamb and the early church, because that's what this is, is you don't do anything for me until you're baptized in the Holy Ghost. So my question is, because the doctrine's been lost, no doubt because it's been attacked so heavily by the enemy, how much of the body of Christ is serving him in violation of this verse. Now, it's an innocent violation. It's a violation of ignorance, and we're guilty of those in other areas that we don't know of, which is why it's called ignorance and innocence. But how many ministers are out there without the promise of the Father? How many missionaries, how many seminarians, how many pastors, how many business owners, how many folks are out there trying to do the work of the ministry and they've not received the promise of the Father? Because we, we very clearly and astutely prove that there are two distinct experiences. There's salvation and then the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Baptism into the body of Christ and then baptism into the power of God, the Spirit of God. John 21 uh, is the baptism of into the body of Christ. Excuse me, John 20, 21, 22, 23. Uh, that's the baptism into the body of Christ called salvation. And the Holy Spirit does that work. But here in Acts 1, they're all born again, but they have not been baptized In the Holy Ghost and power. In fact, that's what verse 5 says. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. It's also why we call it the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We call it the promise of the Father. We call it Pentecost. We call it baptism of the Holy Ghost. We call it being filled with the Spirit. These are all biblical terms. Let me reiterate to you I said it Sunday night. Let us not get caught up in modern terms. We have been given Bible terms. Let us not get caught up in modern terms, woke terms, progressive terms, cool terms, trendy terms. Let's stick with Bible terms. Why do you call it being born again? Because Jesus did. Why don't you call it a decision for Christ? Because the Bible calls it being born again. We call it getting saved. We call it being born again. We call it the new birth because these are Bible terms. Huh. I don't, why, why do we have to leave Heavenly language. Why do we come down to talk earthly? We're supposed to be so different from the world. You know, when, I, well, you won't be able to reach people. They did. Without coming down. You know, when I want to learn a new language, I don't make that language speak my speak. And if I want to learn the language of God, I'm not going to expect the church to come speak my carnal, heathen slang. If I want to be a part of God's company, I come up and learn God's language. Amen. All right. So this is called the promise of the Father because Jesus kept calling it that. In John 14, John 15, John 16. It is the promise of the Father, and if he promised it to us, then we can have it. So one of the questions or one of the arguments we have to debunk is, well, I believe tongues is for today, but it's not for everybody. So you mean there's some promises that don't apply to every Christian? That's what the insinuation is. If the promise is for everybody, he's speaking to 400 or so, 120 show up on Pentecost. Everybody at Pentecost gets spirit-filled and speaks with tongues. Then the promise of the Father in its first manifestation is 100% applied to everybody. Then in Acts 8, everybody gets spirit-filled and speaks with tongues, which means in Acts 8, in Samaria, where the half-breeds live, the promise of the Father is for every believer. And then in Acts 10 in Cornelius, a pure Gentile, full of Romans and centurions and evil oppressors of the Jewish people who still hadn't fully repented. They all get spirit-filled and speak with tongues. Which means the promise of the Father is even for Gentile converts for all. And then Acts 19 in Ephesus, we're getting further and further away. So you have Jerusalem, and then you have Samaria. And then you have Caesarea Philippi up on the coast, which is where Cornelius lives. And then you have Ephesus. All the 12 of them there, they all get spirit filled. So the argument, well, it's just not my spiritual gift. You know nothing about spiritual gifts. (laughs) The Ignorance in the Body of Christ Concerning Spiritual Gifts These are massive published books Is so moronic It's insulting to look at people who have no experience with spiritual gifting and say, here, take a test We'll tell you what your spiritual gifts are Which ones are you referring to? The ones in Romans 12? The ones in Ephesians 4? The ones in 1 Corinthians 12? Uh, Which ones are you talking about? Which spiritual gifts? The manifestations of the Spirit that operate as He wills? Or the grace deposits from God that are manifested towards you that you turn on? Or are you talking about the, the ministry gifts? And yet the rest of the body of Christ just mixed it all together and says, here, take this psychology test. All these books were written post-60s, by the way, when psychology infected every seminary and everybody started getting psychology degrees, which I'm not against. Just don't try to mix it with God. And they said, well, you know what? We, we know how to do personality tests and so let's do a personality test and tell you what your spiritual gifting is. Hogwash. It'll never be accurate because God will not be nailed by some retarded psychologist test. If he doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands, he's not going to be pigeonholed by your spiritual gifting test. You Do those as a party gag if you want to. Consider them mad libs for the kingdom. I did one I, 10 or 12 years ago. I said, I'm a pastor now. never saw this coming. This was never on any of my spiritual gift tests, which I always made fun of. And I really upset people when I would make fun of it. I said, now that I'm a pastor, let me see what my spiritual gifts are. So I took the test. None of them were accurate. You answer as honest as you can. I wasn't trying to throw a curveball. I was just trying to answer as accurate as possible. And in whatever I scored is nothing I was ever good at or ever doing and, uh, and the thing it said I was weakest at was writing and encouragement and teaching. And I was like, well, good thing I'm not led by some dorknob psychological assessment. <laughs> and we don't promote these knob psychological assessments because I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither entered into the heart of them the things that God has prepared for those that love him. So the problem with one of these psychological, spiritual gifting assessment tests is that you'll trust it and ignore the Holy Spirit. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, the test said, this is my gifting. You know nothing ab- about gifts. Neither does the guy that wrote that test. Because right, that, that also, you can do those personality tests. Um, Briggs Meyer, I think, is one of the more famous ones. All that's going to tell you is where you're unbalanced and carnal. And it's going to be accurate because it's psychology. But if you use it, well, I'm a type A or I'm phlegmatic or, you know, somebody was with us recently and they were they were asking, well, I asked one of my kids, Where are you? Um, what was the term? Are you more sanguine? I'm like, I don't even know what that word means. I was like, I don't know. We beat this one a lot. Does that fit? You do these, per- I don't know why I'm talking about this unless some of you are flirting with this and trusting it. Don't trust them. Amen. They're written by pseudo pagans. And they're not accurate, ever. Because yes, God is like get to take you and do something totally different with you. Amen. I wonder if Gideon had ever done his little personality test. And, oh, I, I get to milk goats the rest of my life because I just, I'm sanguine. And then the angel shows up and says, You're going to kill a lot of people. <laughs> Start with your daddy's cow. But the test says I milk goats cuz I'm a sanguine. <laughs> well, the test is wrong. So what happens if you take those tests and you trust in them is that you will never change who you are to be who you're supposed to be. Could be your personality's messed up cuz your parenting was. So maybe take a test for fun and say, "Oh, now I know how to balance my weirdness." Amen. I just, I I haven't brushed up on any of these tests. I was doing it with another friend of mine and he was like trying to, There was like four squares and then there's squares within the squares and it's like, what? You, you know what? You, he's asking like, I should be fluent in this. And like, man, I'm still trying to master the Old Testament. I don't have time for this stuff. But he wanted me to know who I was. And it doesn't really matter because I don't really care. And neither should you. The promise of the Father will change your life. I guarantee you, you still don't know the plan God has for your life. If you can nail it at 18, you're a fool. If you can nail it at 30. Less of a fool, but still a fool. This thing called the walk with God in the Spirit, even Jesus said, if you remember his teaching to the, uh, the Pharisees, he said, hey, the Spirit of God blows and you don't know where. The wind blows, you don't know where it's coming or where it's going. You can't predict when, much less see it. Plus, the Spirit of God is just like it. You have no idea where it's coming or where it's going. And I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor, neither has it entered into our hearts what God has prepared for us yet. So some psychology test doesn't have a clue what God has in store for our life. Amen. All right, so let's talk about speaking in tongues because I want to give you all the things that it does for us. Because we can prove it pretty quickly. We already have for the most part. Speaking in tongues is the will of God for everybody. It's called the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's called the promise of the Father. And if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you can get it. The will of God is for you to speak in tongues, the will of God is for you to pray in tongues every day. We'll address interpretation, all four uses of it out of 120. Let's do math. Let's do math real quick. I'm going to pull up my calculator because that feels like hard math to me. Four divided by 120 is 0.03% or really 3% of all the scriptures. So 3% of the teaching on tongues focuses on interpretation. How come that's all you know about tongues? So that means, here's math. I can do this one. It's easier. 97% of the doctrine of tongues you're clueless to. And none of the doctrine of tongues has anything to do with devils. So, again, I was raised in a denomination. All they knew was interpretation, interpretation, interpretation. And they boasted themselves Bible scholars. But. Really, it's four uses of the word interpret, but that's only in like two or three verses, so we could crank the numbers a little different. But the point remains, 3% of the doctrine of tongues touches on interpretation, which means there's 97% of a doctrine left undiscovered. Maybe we should find ourselves there, since 97% is an A, and 3% is less than failing. 3% is, you didn't even spell your name right at the top of the page. And are you sure you should even be in this class? Do you even know what state you're in? State of confusion is what it sounds like, and deny. So the first thing praying in tongues does, and I want to encourage us in this tonight. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, they're praying in tongues. And we'll just make a list together. And I've got curriculum written on this, but let's just study this together. Verse 11, the crowd that's gathered there They say this about the first thing in the experiential realm of tongues. The first thing we see about tongues is that, verse 11, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Speaking in tongues declares the wonderful works of God. We would call that giving God praise. Speaking in tongues, one of the many things speaking in tongues does is declare the wonderful works of God. Well, you you just never know what you're saying. Well, if I read my Bible, I think I've got eight points tonight, eight things the Bible says tongues does. Then there's a one in eight chance I'm just glorifying God. Now, we could go back to Isaiah 28, which is what we looked at Sunday night. Isaiah 28 says rest. Praying in tongues gives you rest, but we'll also find that in Jude where it says you'll edify yourself. But here's the first thing. The first, instead of prophetic theory, if we'll call it Isaiah 28's prophecy about tongues, stammering lips in an unknown tongue shall speak unto this people, and for all that they will not listen or they'll not hear me, we'll call that prophetic theory because it hadn't happened yet. Here it's happening, and the first manifestation of tongues, everybody in church gets it, and what's it doing? Declaring the wonderful works of God. Lord, you are great. You've made the heavens and the earth. You have made the sea and dry land and all the creatures. You could almost hear the psalms coming out of these tongues. It's pretty wonderful stuff. And they were all amazed. So they 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 were amazed at this thing. Also, remember, Paul said tongues is a sign for the non-believer. If you didn't know this, everybody not in the upper room was a non-believer. So they weren't afraid to pray in tongues. Actually, I don't really think they had much control over it. They prayed in tongues so loud, drew the whole city to their outdoor patio meeting. They didn't dumb it down because there's visitors present. They didn't dumb it down because there were some non-believing seekers who might want to know God. They just let it rip. And not only did they let it rip, the Bible says Peter had to stand up. Because they thought they were drunk. Well, it sounds a little wild, a little confusing. Well, deal with God on that because it's His fault. They started off nice and Baptist, all in one place, one accord, praying, nice and decently and in an order, and then Pentecost, and now the whole town thinks they're drunk, and they're hearing tongues, and they're amazed, and some are in doubt, others are wondering what meaneth this. Sounds like a good Pentecostal service. What meaneth this? The guests walk in. What meaneth this? So this mean God is moving. And Peter has to stand up because apparently he wasn't. So he's not standing, but there's a parapet wall in those Palestinian roofs. How do they know what's even going on up there? Something buck wild is going on if they think they're drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. And I can almost see Peter go, Whoa. And they hear the chants and the jeers. You guys are drunk. (laughs) Not like you suppose. It's just the third hour of the day. This is that spoken by the prophet Joel. So Joel, well, Pentecost is rooted in the prophets of the Old Testament. And everybody spoke in tongues, and the first thing it did was glorify God. Go to Acts 10. Let's look at something else tongues did in the same vein. Because you can back these things up with a couple verses. That's Acts 2. Acts 10. Verse 44, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on a fraction of them which heard the word because it wasn't all their spiritual gifts. Because a third of them had done the test that came in the Reader's Digest, and they found out that their spiritual gifting did not include tongues, so they were holding out for the gift of writing. Because that's one listed somewhere in the Bible. We just hadn't found that verse yet. I hate being sarcastic, but sometimes to deal with our culture, sarcasm works best. <laughs> The Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. How did they know? They of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift, the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Ghost. How did they know that they had all received the gift of the Holy Ghost? For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. There it is again, tongues magnifying God. It was evidence that he received the Holy Ghost. It it should be noteworthy to us that for the premier apostle in the moment, Peter, the rock, confirmation to him that they got the Holy Ghost was tongues. Even the AGs debate this now, that do you have to speak in tongues to prove you have the Holy Ghost? I believe Acts 10 confirms that. Well, they prayed for me and I didn't get it. Well, Maybe you got it. You just hadn't found a way to release it yet. But I don't believe you're baptized in the Holy Ghost until there's an evidence of speaking in tongues. Because that's what the Bible demonstrates over and over and over again. Is there the opportunity you come have hands laid on you? The power of God comes on you. You don't speak in tongues immediately, but you go home and on the way home, all of a sudden it just starts coming out. Sure, you got it. I'm not here to debate. It's like debating, did the church start at Christ's ascension, Christ's resurrection on the day of Pentecost? I don't really care when the church started. It's somewhere in a 50-day period of time. If you say Pentecost, then it means you don't have church without the Holy Ghost. I'm not willing to say that. So let's say at his ascension, or how about the night of his resurrection, when he breathed on him and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Nobody. I have not seen any arguments where anybody wants to put their foot down and say, this is when the church began. I do like the concept that the church began in a prayer meeting, but that puts it on the day of Pentecost, which means the church didn't really get started or birth until everybody spoke in tongues. I don't want to say that because it means non-tongue-talking churches aren't, tongue, aren't churches. I believe they are, though. This is what, When you get into theology, these are the arguments you go back and forth with. But you have to know your Bible. Get off social media. You don't have enough time to waste on that cesspool of middle school retardation. Because some of you think, I wish I could rip through scriptures like pastor. You have to study scriptures to be able to rip through them like pastor. You have to commit them to memory for the Holy Spirit to be able to draw them to remembrance. You can't remember what you never knew. But you can remember all those cat videos. You can remember what the kiddos were doing six years ago. What they were wearing. You remember what that picture of that banana sandwich looked like. We put people on the moon, and like our life is full of this is what I ate today. Look what my dog did today. I don't think we're smarter than the Aztecs. They built ziggurats with stone tools, and here we are, like just taking pictures of food and posting it so people will be friends with us. So your friendship's based on cat videos and pickle sandwiches. Hail, hail, the greatest technological of (laughs) civilization. Lord of mercy. All right, we should move on and find some verses that encourage us. Uh, Go to, let's stop off in Romans 8, Romans chapter 8. Verse 26, let's look at a second thing the Holy Spirit helps us do. Dr Cephas and I were just talking about this debating it if you will on some some aspects of it likewise the spirit also helps our infirmities not sicknesses infirmities that's another word that's been translated like you go back in the day you'd go to the infirmary that was like a hospital we had When I was in grade school back in the 80s, that was the infirmary. If you threw up, broke your finger, got a bloody nose, you go to the infirmary because you were infirm. That is weak. That is sick. But infirmity just means weakness. A lot of folks translate that as sickness, but that's not the text. He helps our weaknesses, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. If it was sickness, the next verse wouldn't say ignorance of prayer. It would say broken bones, coughing up blood, and the palsy. But it doesn't say that. The weakness is we don't know how to pray uh, what we should as we ought. But the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So we see here this example of when we don't know how to pray, one of the things that we're able to do is pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where Dr. Cephas uh, wants to debate things, and I agree with him in this, is that He asked me the question, how do we read ourselves into this? It looks like it's the Holy Spirit doing the interceding and not us. But by the fact it says, with groanings which cannot be uttered, or Amplified says, with an inarticulate speech. Is he making the speech or are we making the speech because we're the ones praying? I argue we're the ones doing the praying. He's the one doing the groaning through us. So the point we want to make here is that When we pray in tongues or with an inarticulate speech, one of the things we can do is intercede. So, praying in tongues brings an intercessory power that overrides knowledge or lack of it. Because the problem being solved is we don't know how to pray as we ought. There's something that needs prayer, something that needs intercession. We can't find it, but the Holy Ghost helps that ignorance by praying for us with groanings that cannot be uttered or inarticulate speech. Now one could argue, can non-tongue talkers do this? I would say yes, but I've never been able to interview someone who's never spoken in tongues and say, have you ever groaned in the Spirit? Because if they don't understand praying in tongues, to let them yield to something as supernatural as a guttural groan, which how many of you have experienced the guttural? Raise your hand so we can see. You've experienced the guttural groan of the Holy Ghost interceding. That can be trippy, can it not? First time it ever happened to me, I rebuked it because I thought I was manifesting a demon because I'd never been around it. I'd heard about it. I didn't know that's what this was. It's like Peter had to stand up and say, this is that. When I finally realized this isn't a demon, because I don't have any reason to have a demon, this is the Holy Ghost groaning and travailing, then I began to just yield to it rather than quench it. So I'm kind of caught, and this is me just talking out loud because it helps me to do so under a teaching anointing. I believe a non-tongue talker could yield to the groanings and travailings of the Trinity because the Holy Spirit yields to the Lord Jesus who searches the hearts because he makes intercession according to man for man according to the will of the father so you see the whole trinity at play here in the next verse i believe a non spirit filled non tongue talker could do this but would they know to do it or would they think they were throwing up would they even know how to yield to the holy ghost because if i was spirit filled when the first time i travailed in groanings was 2004 I'd been spirit-filled at that point eight years, been in some wild services, seen demonic manifestation, supernatural power. Even at that point, I'd left my body once by the Spirit of God. I'd had some wild stuff. I didn't know what groanings were. So I quenched it the first several times the first hour. And I thought, well, maybe we should just let this thing rip and see where it goes. And now I know when it comes on me, I just groan with it. It's possible if you don't know how this works, you could quench it and, and really short-circuit the intercessory power of the Holy Spirit. And, and just as soon as I teach on this, some of you may now recognize, this is the Holy Spirit wanting to groan through me. And you can go about shopping with your shopping buggy and still groan, and you just don't pay attention to anybody. They're going to think you're weird anyway. But we have enough homeless people. You'll just pass as one of those, <laughs> not to pick on them, because some of them are sane, but most of them are not. Just look really nice to do, and just go, little go all oh. Because that's what it sounds like. Whoa. It's almost like you're having a convulsion. And then it passes and you've interceded for something. Maybe you. Anyway, second thing the Holy Ghost or praying in the Spirit does is make intercession. We might be able to couple that with praying out mysteries, but we do want to make a distinction. All intercession like this is mysterious, but not all mysteries are intercession. So we'll parse the two. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 because this is where kind of like the honeypot is. This is the prime fishing hole for what praying in the Spirit does. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll just read a couple verses and stop and talk about them and extract a point of edification. Verse 1, follow after love and covet, lust and desire spiritual things. Does that sound like we should do that if it's been passed away? Again, if if we turn off a third of the Godhead, you have to turn off the whole Godhead. You don't get to pick and choose your Godhead. And I don't want us to be theoretical in our Trinitarianism. We have to be practical and applicable and experiential. And if you didn't know, Jesus isn't in the earth. And if you think he is, then you deny his ascension. And if you deny his ascension, might that make you a heretic? So he ascended, and who did he send? The Holy Spirit, we just read about that in Acts chapter 2. What do you think Pentecost was all about? The descension of the Holy Spirit from heaven into the earth. So what happened for 10 days between the ascension? Did we have like no God in the earth for 10 days? Was it totally godless? No, we know He's omnipresent. But we're also seeing the manifestation of His personage in the body of Christ descending and then the descending of the Holy Spirit. This is why it's a mystery. You're really feeling ashamed that you're still wasting your life on TikTok, aren't you? Because these are easy things to understand. But let me be honest. We're not word people like we confess. We're social media people. We're entertainment people. We're video game people. We're movie people. We're not word people. We don't know our doctrines. Because these are simple things. To me, this is incredibly simple. And you have a Bible. And you can pick any translation you want to. And God will speak to you with it. So it's not like I don't speak yield English. I don't like Shakespeare or Chaucer. There's a lot of new stuff, new translations that are accurate, that are trustworthy. We just don't know our Bible. And you can't know God without your Bible. Because if you're not hungry enough to read a Bible available to you, you're definitely not hungry enough to pray and seek him. So now you're like limping along, no prayer, no Bible study. What are you? Yeah. A churchgoer? Well, what kind of church are you drawn to? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And You can be convicted now, but it doesn't mean you're going to change anything tomorrow. Yes, sir. You're still going to be a TikTok person tomorrow. You're still going to be on YouTube way too much tomorrow and playing way too many video games and watching too much TV. You're still not going to be a word or prayer person. And in the day that we live in, we have to be a word person. That isn't blab it, grab it, name it, and claim it. Say it and slay it. That means you actually live in your Bible and know your God. And you got to be a person of prayer. Okay. 1 Corinthians 12, desire spiritual things, but rather that you may prophesy. Why? He that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. Why is prophecy better? Because tongues is not for people. Now, now wait a minute. Amen, amen. Then, okay, then why do we need an interpretation? Now, the answer is easy because there are tongues that are for the manifestation of a congregation and require interpretation, but these are not those tongues. And when you have experienced the gifts of the Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you can read these verses and very clearly discern how they're applied and not applied. We I use the example I think Sunday, I don't know which service, about us learning about publication now and how to go to press and how when you're making a book, you have a gutter and you have a bleed. Well we're not talking about rain or human anatomy. But if you don't know those terms, you have no idea what it's talking about. What what's the bleed? Are we talking about ink? What's the gutter? Well, what's the end page? How much gutter does it get? How much bleed? Kerning and leading. These are terms that we're having to use. Has nothing to do with margins. You've got to learn this stuff. Otherwise you're totally out of the loop. And it would be like an ignoramus trying to read the directions from a book publication and putting their insane understanding on leading and kerning. Is that like metal? And corn kernels? Is that what we're kerning? What's bleeding here? And you start telling them what they meant when that's not what they meant because they knew what they meant. You just don't know what they mean. But they assumed you knew what they meant because you're supposed to have the teacher. The teacher's supposed to speak to you. But if he doesn't have a voice anymore because he went silent in the ninth century, who who, who let the church know that the Holy Spirit went silent in the ninth century? You get into these do loops of theological foolishness. Meanwhile, the third world church casts out devils, heals the sick, raises the dead, and starts churches like wildfire. He that speaketh in the unknown tongue speaketh not unto men but unto God, for no man understands him. Howbeit in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. So the third thing, and this is one of my favorites, tongues speaks mysteries. Tongues speaks mysteries. The Greek word is mysterion. We transliterate it as mystery. We get it from the Latin, Greek into Latin and the English. It means so we get the word muse. The word muse is there. Silent, unspoken things. I like to point out, It's an oxymoron. You have to speak that which is unspoken. That's what makes it a mystery. Here's the danger. This is the other controversial statement I stand by. Just like I don't think you should be in ministry without the baptism of the Holy Ghost because Jesus doesn't seem to think you should be in ministry without the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I don't think you can finish your race without the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I don't think you can do it because if you have to pray out mysteries and the only way to do it is with the power of the Holy Ghost, how can you finish your race only praying with what you know. Because to the day you go home to heaven, there's going to be huge chunks that you don't know that still have to be prayed out. If you don't pray in tongues, will you marry the right person? If you don't pray in tongues, will you take the right job? If you don't pray in tongues, will you land in the right church? If you don't pray out the mysteries, will you get the right degree? It's a crapshoot. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. depends on how close you walk with God and no peace. But if everything must be processed through prayer and you and I are limited to only praying what we know, when the Bible says don't lean to what you know, but if I don't pray in tongues, all I can is lean to what I know, I'm caught in a do loop of contradictory scripture. And because of that, we see pastors in the wrong churches, missionaries in the wrong countries, Christians marrying the wrong believer. We have to have the gift of the Holy Ghost to be able to pray out mysteries. I, like to, I liken it to railroad tracks. We can have the power of God and the coal of the scripture, but if we don't have tracks, we're going nowhere. And If all you can do is pray out one day at a time, you only get to move forward one day at a time, and you never get to pick up momentum. But praying in the spirit prays out mysteries, which means you're laying out tracks miles in advance, which allows you to pick up a lot of momentum. You can lean to your own understanding and think your life is going over here, but in reality, God's about to take it in this direction. But if all you ever have to pray and lean on is your own understanding, you'll march the wrong way with a good heart for God and end up in heaven prematurely. This is one of the most powerful things tongues affords us because we can intercede in English and we can declare the wonderful works of God in English and we can give thanks well in English. That's another thing. And we can sing in English, which is another thing we do in the Spirit. And we can build ourselves up in English. That's another thing we can do in the Spirit. This is the only thing we can't do in English. So this is one of the most critical abilities of praying in tongues, to speak unspoken things, which is why... It's necessary for us to pray in tongues at least 15, 20, I would say thirty minutes a day. Let's take let's take two believers. Josh sits on the front row a lot, we're gonna keep picking on him till he moves to the back. We're gonna shame him in the back row. No. That was easy. And we'll take Nick here because the two bearded redheads. What happened to your handlebar trucker thing? Are you kinda of, He shaved it off? You shamed it off? Somebody should have shamed it off. So let's take the two of these men. They're both spirit-filled. They both have degrees. They both are intelligent. They both have careers. If Nick prays in tongues an hour a day as part of his walk with Christ, they're both single men, ladies, both single men, ladies. Sometimes we have to play matchmaker. (laughs) Look up for thy redemption draweth nigh. Single men love God, holy, clean, driven, determined. If Nick prays in tongues an hour a day and Josh prays in tongues an hour every two or three weeks, who is going to finish their course? Who's going to be miles ahead? It's like my friend, Pastor Colin Tadlock said, I was brought up in church. I was drugged to three services a week. He said, I had friends that were only brought to one service a week. And he said, all these years later, if I was only brought to church one service a week, I would be one third the believer I was meant to be. So your future is as bright as your prayer life. No prayer life? Just stay on Facebook. That's where you're headed, baby. You already got there because you're keeping up with them. No prayer life? No future. No prayer life? No guarantee you'll find God's destiny. There's so many options today. It's insane. And in the abundance of options, there's always going to be confusion. We have to pray more than our predecessors did. And there was less decisions for them to make. They're making up new majors every year so a university can draw new underqualified students. (laughs) And if you're the right color, they'll just go ahead and put you in the school so they can hit their diversity quota. You don't even have to be smart. You just have to be the right color with the right last name and you're going to be in that department though you don't deserve to be anywhere near a GED. And that's how the modern woke universities work. And it's damning. And don't trust them when they come out as doctors or lawyers because they don't know what they're doing. Because they shouldn't have been in the undergrad program to begin with. Not because of their color or their last name, but because of their intellectual ability. Which also goes back to home culture. It helps to have a dad. Any fatherless culture will go nowhere. The more you pray in tongues, the more you are guaranteed to hit those switching stations at your railroad tracks. The more you pray in tongues, the more you're likely to take the right track and not the wrong track. Because you're praying out things that are only in the heart and mind of God for your life. We have a cursed cultural mindset that says... I'm going to dream a little dream. I'm going to plan my life. I'm going to use my advisor to do it and my resource officer to do it and the counselor at school to do it. And that's what I'm sticking with. And God better bless it every step of the way. But the Bible says, I know the plans I have for you. The Bible says, it does not yet appear what we shall become. The Bible says that I hath not seen nor has it even entered into our heart yet the things that God has prepared for us that love him. So why are we planning this thing out five years at a time? The book of James barely gives you permission to plan one year. Barely, Which means you better own that year solid if you want direction for the next year. But if you're just still flirting, finding fun, chasing fun one year at a time, you're not going to go very far for Christ. So this mystery thing, this is one of the most critical reasons to pray in tongues. Now the ironic thing is, if you're praying in tongues, you may not know what you're doing in tongues. Am I interceding? You'll probably know because it'll be very guttural and determined. Are you worshiping God? You'll probably know because you just have this elation about you. Are you speaking out mysteries? You'll probably know because it'll just feel like, I'm just doing something. I'm just accomplishing something. I can tell you, I've been spirit filled since 96. I've prayed in tongues probably every day since then. There might be a few days I've missed. And there have been many times I've walked into a situation, been on the mission field, made a business decision, purchased a house. I walked into it and I said, I've been here before. Met somebody. I'm like, I know you. I have prayed. I just know on the inside, I've prayed about you. I've met you before in the spirit. I've been in this country before in prayer. This is the benefit of praying in tongues. I feel so sorry for those who don't get to. Not because it's not their gifting, but because their denomination has pillaged this faith. To deny the Holy Ghost, you have to yield to an unclean spirit. A religious one that will use Scripture to talk you out of Scripture. You'll never go wrong exalting the Godhead. What else can tongues do for us? Well, he that prophesies speaketh unto men edification and exhortation and comfort. Verse 4, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself. So praying in tongues is self-edification. That's not a bad thing. Sometimes you got nobody with you. Pray in tongues and build yourself up. This also echoes Jude. It says, building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. So if you want to write down Jude 20, this is a companion verse to 1st Corinthians 14. Sometimes you pray in tongues just to build yourself up. Just to build yourself up. Let me give you something trippy because I'm running out of time quick. We're not going to get through all eight of these. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. So Even though chapter 12 exalts the gifts of the Spirit, Paul brings it back and says, we need not forget love. Love edifies. Love does a great thing for God. But I want you to see that there are two types of tongues that we can pray in. The tongues of men, which would be earthly languages, and the tongues of angels, which would be angelic. That means that if I pray in a tongue that's an earthly tongue, If somebody's present that speaks that language, they'll be able to understand me, not with the gift of the Spirit, but through natural intellectualism. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. All those men, Phrygia, Parthenians, Greeks, they all heard them speak in their own tongue the wonderful works of God. But then there are those times when you pray in tongues and nobody on earth will be able to understand it because it's not an earthly language. It's an angelic one. But also understand this. If you've ever dealt with demons, demons speak earthly languages. They manifest through people and speak earthly languages. I'm convinced they can speak any language. They've been here forever. The root word of the Greek daemon, it's a Greek word for demon. Daemon means knowledge. That's why we're not impressed with smart people or soothsayers or, or fortune tellers because demons, they peddle in knowledge. They've been around forever. They're a spirit. So, uh, you know, you you always have that that third uncle twice removed on your mother-in-law's side, the one that used to be a part of the, you know, traveling show, and they always have some story about somebody speaking in tongues, and and your friend just happened to speak their native tongue, and, you know, it was like Lithuanian or something, and all of it's just a made-up hoax of a story. So you always discount that weird uncle twice removed on your mother-in-law's side because sometimes you want to discount your mother-in-law. But they always have some sort of, well, this man spoke in tongues and he was demon-possessed. Well, demons speak English. Demons speak German. Demons speak Swahili. Demons speak Japanese. So sure, a demon could manifest through somebody and they speak an earthly language. Some of our youth have been to Honduras and seen a demon-possessed girl who spoke nothing but Spanish speak to them in perfect English. And to everybody in the congregation, that demon was speaking in tongues. Yes, to the youth, she's talking our language, threatening us. So we're just going to tell her, shut up and cut them out, come out anyway. Yeah. I told you the story of my friend, uh, Pastor Mark Donald. He sent us a video. Uh, he, I called him the, the Shona T.D. Jakes because he looks like T.D. Jakes. He's just a little bit skinnier. Uh, dear friend, love him. He was telling me uh, a couple years ago, he's, he's Zim, but he was raised in Botswana. So he speaks uh, Setswana. That's his tribal tongue, Setswana. Though he's Zim. And it's complicated. There's no real bloods in the earth. Bunch of mutts. So he speaks Setswana. And he was up in Uganda preaching. And he was casting the devil out of a girl, he said. And he said, we'd cast nine devils out of this girl. He said, I was a little girl. I was exhausted. I had two men. He said, I had two men holding her. So I took a break to take a breather. She's not going anywhere. The little girl's exhausted. Anyway, long story short, he comes up to cast the last devil. He knows by the Spirit of God, word knowledge, there's one devil left. He goes to cast the last devil out. He's been speaking English because he's in Uganda. Uganda is a long way away from Zimbabwe and Botswana. They speak some Swahili in Uganda. They speak Lugandan in Uganda, and they speak English he's speaking English. They're translating into Lugandan. He goes to cast this last demon out, and he says this little girl, who is Lugandan, speaks to him in his tribal tongue from 3,000 miles south and says, who do you think you are trying to cast me out? And he said, Pastor Chris, how did that demon know where I was from and know my tribal tongue? I said, I don't know, man. It's a demon. I said, what'd you do? He said, I told it in my tribal tongue. It doesn't matter who I am. I've come to cast you out anyway. So he he said, imagine the whole congregation. It looks like I'm talking in tongues to this demon because it's a native tongue. It's an an earthly tongue. So just because you're a weird uncle twice removed from your mother-in-law's side (laughs) who used to be part of the carnival and juggled midgets for a living, just because (laughs) he has a story involving tongues and a demonized person doesn't make it legitimate My friend, now the other. Let me bust this, and then we'll pray and probably wrap up. My friend, Pastor Kerry, who was here with us last week, he was telling me a story. I was brought up charismatic, word of faith to believe. We pray in tongues because the devil can't understand what you're saying. Anybody heard that? It's like secret decoders, like the Navajo wind talkers. The Japanese can't crack it. You pray in tongues, the devil will never know what you're saying. Well, if I'm praying in earthly languages and they speak earthly languages. Like I've told you, the only real good story I've got, I've got a couple cool stories. College, and I'm praying with Jeff Harris, and he starts praying in Japanese. And I had just come from Seattle and was pretty good in Japanese, and I understood everything he was saying in Japanese. And I could translate it mentally. Well, if a Japanese demon and demons speak every language, they could understand what he's saying. So Pastor Kerry was telling me this story. He didn't know what he was doing helping me. He He said, did I tell you about the time... I, uh, I prayed in tongues at a demon for two hours. I said, no, tell me. He said, all right. He said, I woke up, couldn't breathe. There was a demon in my room suffocating me. He said, I looked at the clock. It was 2 a.m. on the dot. And I, he said, I was being choked to death by this demon. I had just entered into the political realm, I believe he said, and, he, and I may be getting some of the details wrong. The important part's coming. He said, this demon was trying to kill me, and I finally got out. Get off me in Jesus' name. I rebuke you in Jesus' name. He said, so the demon left. And he said, praise God, I'll go back to bed. And the Lord wouldn't let me. So I got up and I began to pray in tongues. He said, I got up and I realized the demon hadn't left my house, though I just commanded him to. So he said, I could perceive the demon was still in the house. So he said, I just began to pray and try to rebuke this thing. And as I began to rebuke it, I just go into tongues. It was an hour. He prayed for an hour. He said, so I prayed in tongues for an hour. And he said, it's the weirdest thing. He said, I could tell the demon was in the attic trying to get out of the roof, but it couldn't get out like a bird or a bug stuck. And I just kept pacing up and down the hallway, praying in tongues. And then he would turn around and I'm just praying in tongues, praying in tongues. And, and finally, after an hour, he said, I know it was an hour because when I laid down, it was 3 a.m. on the dot. So I prayed from two to three. He said, "I was finally, the demon just left and I could go to sleep. And I laid down, he said, and I said, Lord, I commanded that demon to leave and it took an hour for him to get out of my attic. What's that all about? My Bible says I got authority over demons and I told him to go. And the Lord spoke to him and said, you had some things I wanted him to hear. <laughs> and whatever it was, he didn't want to hear it. He was trying to get away from it. But the Lord just, I guess, kept that demon. So he had to hear Pastor Carey pray in tongues or declare in tongues at this demon. He said, you had some things to say I wanted that demon to hear. All right. So that busted my doctrine pretty good. A couple stories like that will do it for you. Let's do one more. Ah, you edify yourself. That's a good thing to do. I like verse 5. I would that you all spoke with tongues. That's important. Coming down. Let's look at verse 14. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 15. I will pray with the Spirit. I will pray with the understanding. So the fifth thing you can do is pray, Now that gets into supplication. Praying for yourself, praying things out, declaring things. That's kind of a general lump, but you can pray with the Spirit, and then Paul said also we want to pray with our understanding. There's five easy, quick things right there. Declare the wonderful works of God, make intercession, speak mysteries, build yourself up, and just generally pray. Is it any wonder why of all doctrines, this is the one Christians will part ways over. I mean, this is you open your mouth in tongues and God is praying through you. I don't want you to ever forget that. You open your mouth as a spirit filled believer to pray in tongues and and the light of God, the essence of God, the Holy Ghost is giving us utterance to declare the things of God. We would call it flawless prayer. Because it bypasses our mind and our understanding. No, there's no wonder the devil will oppose this and teach churches that it's done away with. No wonder the devil will talk us out of praying in tongues every day or thinking, this is just, why do we have to do this so much? It's God talking through your mouth. Don't, that'll help a little bit, just a little. Don't let the devil ever talk you out of it. Pray, Dr. Jacob Dr. Jacobs says, Pray in tongues more than you think you can. Yeah, Just let it always burp out of you. Praying in tongues. Yeah. My kids and I, we pray in tongues every time we drive into town for church. I want my kids comfortable praying in tongues. There's more more to say about mysteries part, but I want to get through these, these primary eight, and then we'll come back and hit one or two of these in more detail, but... I want us to be encouraged. I want us to know these doctrines. We have believers all around us that are hungry for this, and we're going to have to be able to show it to them, them, help them with it. We can't just sit on it. When I got spirit-filled, and it changed my life so radically, I I had to deal with anger at the Southern Baptists for depriving me of it. I wanted to know why have I been in church my whole life, and I'm just getting spirit-filled at 19 it made now there was no reason to be angry everybody in my life had done the best they knew and it gave me a foundation I'm forever thankful for but you can understand why the devil will fight it and oppose it when it allows you to do so many wonderful things without leaning to your own understanding fulfill your calling marry the right person take the right career get the right degree move to the right state go to the right church why would you not pray in it intercede for family members when you don't know how to pray pretty good deal. Oh, and it's free. Totally free. I mean, like so free. Cost you nothing but some criticism from your weird uncle who used to work with the carnies. You can get it on your own. You can have hands laid on you. My best, my favorite story is my friend Greg, who actually got me coming to this church in 95. He got me coming. I got spirit filled before he ever got spirit filled. We used to do a lot of backpacking together. He and his wife still serve the same pastor down in Birmingham now. He was a fellow geologist. He and I were we were in a backpacking class, but we were doing this team building exercise. So we were at Pickett State Park in the cabins. So all, we're, all the guys have a cabin. So Greg and I are sleeping in the same bed in our sleeping bags. So Greg wasn't spirit-filled yet, but in his dream, somebody laid hands on him, and he got spirit-filled in a dream. So he woke up speaking in tongues. Never heard of that one before or since. But hey, if you can dream it, you can have it, I guess. So he was just so real to him. He got spirit-filled and dreaming. He woke up going, oh, it worked, worked, worked. I would like to think it was me breathing on him the breath of snoring, but I don't think that was it. <laughs> yeah. Be encouraged and pray in tongues more than you think you can. Anytime you're in a hardship, pray in the Spirit, and it will change things. Pray this with me, church. We'll dismiss. Father, in Jesus' name. Thank you that I can pray in tongues. Thank you that I'm spirit-filled. May I participate more. May I partake more. May I pray in tongues more. May I glorify you more. Help me finish my race. Help me make the right decisions. And may I spend every day in your will. I love you, Lord, and I trust you.